0: This last round with COVID 19. You have um, detained women. I had several detained women on numerous occasions that would come to me and say, Miss Wooten, I had hysterectomy. Um, why? I had no answers as to why they had those procedures. Um, and one lady walked up to me here this last time around between October of 19 until July the 2nd. And she said, what is he? Is he the uterus collector? Does he collect uteruses? And I asked her, what does she mean? And she says, everybody that I talked to has had a hysterectomy, and you just don't know what to say. I mean, I don't, I don't have a answer for why that they would come to me, and they would say, is he the uterus collector?
1: You have good genes, you know that, right?
2: You have good genes. A lot of it's about the genes, isn't it? Don't you believe? The racehorse theory, you think we're so different? You have good genes in Minnesota.
1: Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk About Race. I like to end the show by saying every day and in every way, we hope you agitate for social change. Thank you. For, listening.
0: for more information on Let's Talk About Race, visit us on social media. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk Race 1, or check us out on Instagram at LTAR Show. You are
2: listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at KBOO.FM.
0: Driving around and we would see Nazi skinheads, we'd jump out of the car and we we're like, are you white pride, are you white pride? And we start swinging.
3: They are part and parcel of the story of Oregon. They are part of the history here. And so we should never behave as if, because they become less visible, they've gone away. In fact, they've always been
2: here. Late one night
0: in 1988, Mulugeta Sarah was beaten with a baseball bat and left for dead.
2: Three white kids who killed Sarah weren't outside agitators, but members of East Side White Pride, a neo-Nazi street gang.
0: By the mid-90s, racist skinheads had disappeared from the streets of Portland. How did this happen?
2: It Did Happen Here is a documentary podcast that chronicles how immigrants, civil rights activists, and militant youth work together with the diversity of tactics to drive white supremacist street gangs out of Portland.
0: The first episode will be released November 13th, the 32nd anniversary of the murder of Mulugeta Surah. Stay tuned. Are you sheltering at home this Halloween weekend? Tune into KABU for KABU's Halloween Dance Party from 7 to 10 p.m. on Saturday, October 31st. Need a reason to dress up this year? We want to see your costumes. Post your pictures and videos on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter with the hashtag StayHomeAndDance. We'll choose some to share on social media. Again, that's KBOO's Halloween Dance Party on Saturday, October 31st from 7 to 10 p.m. here on your community radio station.
2: say what's up to everybody David d hanging out with you and it is good to have somewhat of a voice back i've been without a voice for almost a full week but it's back and we're here and we're here to talk this afternoon and uh, share some thoughts a riveting speech from a friend a freedom fighter an artist an organizer somebody who is no joke her name is Patrice Cullors. You may know that name because she is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And uh, is recently been getting a lot of attention because her and another friend, Asha Bend- Bendeli, have written a book. And um, the book is incredible. Um, let me just get the title because I always mess up the title of When They Call You a Terrorist. I read that book and... You know, it was riveted to just on the edge of my seat. And it's not an entertaining book in that sense. You know, I don't want to, you know, it's not like a a spy thriller. But it was riveting because how um, real they were able to describe what it was like coming up in Los Angeles in Van Nuys during the 1980s. The types of abuse that citizens who are black or brown routinely have to deal with that often doesn't get reported i mean we hear about the shooting death of unarmed individuals in our community but what's never really talked about is the day-to-day harassment um brutality um humiliations disrespect that people encounter when they live in these areas. Um, You know, once, I think it was Bobby Seale or maybe Huey Newton of the Black Panthers talked about the police being an occupying army. And you really get that picture in reading um, this book, When They Call You a Terrorist. And from that, those descriptions and those challenges that are described in growing up to see uh, Patrice, you know, rise up and become this fierce organizer, you know, First, organizing against the sheriff after seeing her brother brutalized and then um, calling for police accountability throughout Southern Cali. And then, of course, you know, being a a key anchor in BLM, Black Lives Matter, is inspiring and it's much needed uh, reading and analysis. Um, For a new generation of folks uh, to kind of understand what the current terrain is. And so uh, it was good to talk to her and it was good that she came to the Bay Area and she spoke. She spoke at the First Congregational Church in Oakland. Our very own Kat Brooks, who is no joke, herself, um, shared the dais and uh, they got busy. And so with that being said, I want us to listen to Patrice Cullors, who has been on our show above and beyond this speech and above and beyond the fun drive. But this afternoon, we want to share her her incredible remarks in the conversation she had with Cat Brooks at the First Congregational Church in Oakland. So without uh, further ado, let us turn the mic over to Patrice and Cat Brooks, and uh, we'll be right back on Hard Knock Radio.
3: I'm very, very grateful for uh, the warm welcome to the Bay Area. I feel super humbled to hold space tonight for black people. Uh, What we've been through, what we've survived, how we've survived, and um, the brilliant and innovative and creative movement of this moment. And it's a deep and profound honor to be able to have been on a two-week tour, and this is the last stop. So I want to read a bit for y'all from this beautiful, beautiful book, And, um, and then we'll sit and chat it up with my sister, Kat. We are Stardust. I write to keep in contact with our ancestors and to spread truth to people. Sonia Sanchez. Days after the election of 2016, Asha sent me a link to a talk by astrophysicist Neil Degrassi Tyson. We have to have hope, she says to me across 3,000 miles. She in Brooklyn me in Los Angeles. We listen together as Dr. Degrassi Tyson explains that the very atoms and molecules in our bodies are traceable to the crucibles and centers of stars that once upon a time exploded into gas clouds. And those gas clouds formed other stars, and those stars possessed the divine right mix of properties needed to create not only planets, including our own, but also people, including us, me and her. He is saying that not only are we in the universe... But that the universe is in us, he is saying that we, human beings, are literally made out of stardust. And I know when I hear this, and I know when I hear him say this, that he is telling the truth because I have seen it since I was a child. The magic, the stardust we are, and the lives of the people I come from. I watched it in the labor of my mother, a Jehovah's Witness and a woman who worked two and sometimes three jobs at a time, keeping other people's children, working the reception desks at gyms, telemarketing, doing anything and everything for 16 hours a day, the whole of my childhood in the Van Nuys barrio where we lived. My mother, cacao brown and smooth, disowned by her family for the children she had as a very young and unmarried woman, my mother never giving up despite never making a living wage. I saw it in the thin brown face of my father, a boy out of Cajun country, a wounded healer whose addictions were born of a world that did not love him and told him so not once but constantly. My father, who always came back, who never stopped trying to be a better version of himself, there were no mirrors for. And I knew it because I am the 13th generation progeny of a people who survived the holes of slave ships, survived the chains, the whips, the months laying in their own and The human beings legislated as not human beings who watched their names, their languages, their goddesses and gods, the arc of their dances and beats of their songs, the majesty of their dreams, their very family snatched up and stolen, disassembled and discarded. And despite this built language and honored God and created movement and upheld love. What could they be but stardust, these people who refuse to die, who refuse to accept the idea that their lives did not matter, that their children's lives did not matter. Ashe. Um.
4: God, there's so many good places to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I just want to start with the title of the book, When They Call You a Terrorist. <laughs> when was the first time you were called a terrorist?
3: Um, <laughs> uh, the first time I'm called a terrorist is definitely somewhere in 2015 or 2016. Um, I, I want to say it was before the Dallas shootings um, that there were mumbling of us being terrorists, Black Lives Matter, both the leadership but also the organization being a terrorist organization. But it was definitely the, um, the Dallas shootings in which uh, not just right-wing pundits but elected officials and appointed officials were calling us terrorists. Um, and I think it was a moment where I saw my face and, and folks Oh, I love faces. Um, uh, and the headlines of Bill O'Reilly and the headlines of Breitbart news. Yes. I think that was the first time
4: you mentioned Texas um, and specifically, specifically you're talking about Micah Johnson um, who at a, a black lives matter protest um, ended up killing five police officers mm-hmm. who then responded by sending a robot to blow him up. Mm-hmm. When you woke up that morning and that was on the news mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
3: I had just had my child just a couple, few months before. Uh, I think I was three or four months out. And I remember first, before I got the news, because I was trying to stay away from the news and social media. I was supposed to be on maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bunch of text messages. And they were like, did you see what happened in Dallas? Like, are you like? We have to get an emergency phone call. And um, as I looked, and and uh, you know, for for folks of color, the first question we always ask about a shooter is, "What race is he?" Because it will determine the outcome um, of what happens to that person, but also what happens to us. And so, the moment they said the shooter was black, I was like, "Okay," like they're about to go after us, and that's exactly what happened. And We spent the next 48 hours to 72 hours trying to navigate um, how to have a conversation about um, the state's need to blame any black person's behavior, especially if it was against law enforcement on Black Lives Matter.
4: And there's this thing that happens. I mean, glad you, we joke about it, though, uh, in less serious situations, right? Mm-hmm. That when something happens, like if you're black, you're praying, you're brown, you're praying, right? Mm-hmm. And praying that it's somebody else.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: But then there's this dynamic that happens with people of color, mm. with, within certain pockets of people of color. But then this group trots themselves out and apologizes, yeah. right, for whatever that person has done on behalf of the race of people. Mm-hmm. But when Dylan Roof... Mm-hmm. Right Murdered those folks You, you never see white people trot people out And apologize for the brutality Totally um, That they exercise on other people
3: Yes <laughs> You are right Kat uh, <laughs> I think um, You know it was such an interesting moment And for us If the audience remembers This was like the height of a resurgence of protesting because Philando and because Alton Sterling had just been murdered. And so the Dallas protests were for Philando and Alton Sterling. And the moment um, um, those officers were killed, it took a sharp left turn. And um, I think the work of BLM in that moment was to keep the momentum for our movement. Um, and I think it was really important that we were able to say, this is our focus. Our folks are dying. We have to continue to pay attention to that. It's a tricky um, dynamic, I think, when you're constantly being blamed for harms against other people. And it's easy to fall into the trap of apologizing. And I think. Part of the work that we have to do is show up for what we know is true, which is black folks are dying the hands of law enforcement every single day. And just last year, a thousand people died at the hands of the police, almost doubled from the year before. And today, 83 people, the month hasn't even ended yet, have been killed by law enforcement. We have to continue to have that conversation, even when it's in the spotlight and even when it's not.
4: Does that conversation shift or evolve when we are now in a dynamic of um, the Black Identity Extremist Report? <laughs> right. So, for folks who don't know, but I imagine this is a room full of folks who do know. Um, right. The FBI released a report called Black Identity Extremist. Um, it's about black people that are are doing work uh, and and <laughs> uh, and allegedly uh, or perceive that there is danger to their lives uh, by law enforcement. The whole report is filled with allegedly perceived, perhaps, right, no, no concrete admission, of course, that there's a war on black life. Does the conversation shift at all? It does. I mean,
3: for, I want to just say a few things about that. W- number one is that the black identity extremist label is made up by the FBI. It didn't exist before the FBI created it. So that should make everybody feel mad suspect. (laughs) We're not out here with, like, black identity extremist hats and pens and t-shirts. I'm about to get a shirt. I know. I've seen the pens. (laughs) I've seen the pens. Um, But it happened after the FBI created it. Uh, And I just think that's important, right? They created a whole identity for black activists and black activism. Um, and two, that there's always been a long history of black people who have fought for our freedom that have been labeled as terrorists, who are uh, labeled as um, counterinsurgents. And I think with, the, with this black identity extremist label, we should see it in its historical context. And I think I'm, I'm curious about this moment because what we didn't have in the height of COINTELPRO is elected officials challenging the CIA, publicly. Uh, What we do have in this moment is some elected officials, specifically Congresswoman Karen Bass, who has taken it uh, the charge to hold Attorney General Jeff Sessions accountable, the FBI director, and really take them to task about this identity. Um, And I think that's actually really important. Um, And I think that's really necessary to have that conversation.
2: Listening to the voice of Patrice Cullors co-founder of the organization black lives matter author of the new book or co-author of the new book when they call you a terrorist A black lives matter memoir her uh, other writer is asha bendeli on the stage with them is kat brooks from the anti-police terror network and and uh, really getting to the heart of the matter talking about when you were called a terrorist the long history a black activists being criminalized and demonized and uh the fbi with this new report about black identity extremists and uh the tendency to blame anything and everyone on black lives matter this is not a new tactic if you look to the annals of history and you go back to the late 60s and early 70s um anybody who was speaking out um Against injustice got the tag of being militant. That was the word that they used back then. Oh you're a militant. You know. I just wanted the sidewalk in front of my house to be fixed. That's a militant, you know. And they had a war on drugs, uh, which we later found out was concocted and that there was no real danger of drugs, but it was an excuse to go after militant or people who were labeled militant by the Nixon administration. <clears throat> And of course, on these airwaves, we did full shows on that. We've had people who are victims of that, um, who are on the short end of the stick. Um, we went into an in-depth discussion about that. So history is repeating itself. And on these airwaves, we like to remind people of that history um, so that we can have a better analysis and move forward um, as we combat the type of challenges that we are faced with. Let's listen to some more of Patrice Cullors here on Hard Knock Radio.
4: One of the things people might not know about you um, that I love I could have saved him for last Um, but because I think this idea of black identity extremists in particular um, within the age of Trump and the war on dissent that uh, he's waging, right Um, how does our organizing shift? Does it shift? Um, Yes, it does
3: and no it doesn't Um, I think what's important is for us to understand that there's a long-haul fight. And this particular moment, while we have to be responsive, um, we also can't get um, too wrapped up in reaction. Uh, I think what's been brilliant about the last four and a half years is that we haven't gone anywhere. Um, And the work has been ever more clear. I I think the other piece is sometimes we get um, really caught up and so the national landscape, when there's so much local work to be doing, um, when there's such a rich local fight. And um, in my opinion, and what we've seen historically, is the local really impacts the national. Um, and if we can stay on the ground locally, if we could do that work, we could change the face of this country. We can look at... Um, <laughs> We can look at decriminalization, we can look at gay marriage, right? State by state, city by city, county by county. Um, and eventually it spreads like wildfire across the country. So um, my, you know, my advice to organizers is always try to stay as local focus as possible with the clarity of a national and global lens.
4: Under um, the Obama administration uh, we saw a lot of reforms mm-hmm. uh, take place. We saw the, the Blue Ribbon Commission being formed. We saw body cameras. We saw um, the co optation of the term community policing. <laughs> we saw um, people talking about diversity in police departments. Can policing, from your perspective, be reformed? No. <laughs> why not
3: <laughs> i'm following your lead facilitator um so yeah flat out no and um i'm an abolitionist a staunch abolitionist um, what does that mean for you i was just gonna give that definition <laughs> we're, we're, we're like zoom right, right now um So abolition is not just the getting rid of something. Um, It's also the um, imagining of something else, the building of something else. And so abolition has a long history in this country, Uh, the abolition of slavery. Uh, Slavery was never really abolished. We could talk about the 13th Amendment Um, and uh, um, policing the court systems, Uh, jails and prisons, surveillance, is all in the prison police apparatus. And I believe that that should uh, no longer exist. I think if we have uh, policing, prisons, courts, surveillance, uh, in any form or fashion, black people will always be um, suffering from it. We will always be um, uh, bearing the brunt. Of those agencies and so the work I I believe is to abolish and uh, abolish these systems Um, and then the other part of the work is to build institutions that are really uh, the foundation around transformative justice um, community accountability um, and a deep desire for black folks to have our dignity to be cared for in the ways that we deserve to be cared for so this time especially I think we should be calling for abolition um, under 45 it's easy because so much of what he's doing is egregious for us to sort of just to be like, all right, if we just get this, right, if we just get these small reforms, uh, it's easy to sort of fill the, the hole of grief that we feel collectively uh, because of this regime. But I think in these moments when it's, even, it's heightened, right, um, that we should be calling for abolition, um, that we should be naming it, we should feel unapologetic in naming it, and we should be um, creating our local movements to mirror what abolition could look like locally, Part of what that looks like, I think, is um, requesting and demanding that we divest from law enforcement. I know that um, APTP and and many Bay Area groups have made a call for um, divestment divestment from Oakland uh, OPD. I know that in Los Angeles we've made a call to uh, divest from LAPD. And what what we've seen is that in all of the social service budgets, and it's a tragedy that law enforcement is called a social service, um, but in all the social service budgets, um, law enforcement is the budget that's always increased, it's always um, given the most money, it's the most resourced, and everything else, um, access to employment, access to healthy food, access to adequate public education is um, divested from, and so we need to flip that. Uh, And we have to be courageous enough to call for that. And our elected officials, who are often backing law enforcement, have to show up and say, okay, we cannot allow this to happen anymore.
4: But Patrice, (laughs) what about crime?
3: (laughs) Oh, so-called crime. Um, Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, I I think there's different kinds of conversations we can have about harm and violence. Um, I don't use the word crime. I know you don't either. You're just being a good questioner. I was being a character. (laughs) Um, I think we should always be talking about harm and violence and the ways in which we respond to it. I think the best organizers are not just talking about abolition without talking about accountability and community accountability Um, and some of the best work that I've seen uh, I've seen it happening around this country I've seen it happening in other places Um, most of most of the communities that are marginalized don't actually call the police I wasn't raised calling the police in fact um, in my in the book I actually name a moment where I felt like I had to call the police I did They came, and then I asked them to leave. And I knew from that moment that, um, yeah, this calling the police actually isn't safe. Um, And so we have to, it's imperative that we figure out other ways that we respond to harm and violence in our communities. I I, I could
4: spend a a bit of time on that, but I want to stop there.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I'm going to unravel that just a little bit further. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really, um, that really sat with me in the book as, uh, as someone who comes from a family that was riddled with addiction mm-hmm. um, is your analysis around addiction and accountability. So there's the 12-step program, mm-hmm. right, which centers uh, on personal accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have a larger frame that's sort of rooted in the conditions of community that I would love for you to expand upon.
3: Yeah, it's... Really, the the issue I have with personal responsibility is it um, makes it seem like our actions are in a vacuum. And so I think there's a difference between personal responsibility, which I disagree with that term, and personal accountability. I think we should all be accountable for actions and behavior, uh, but being responsible is a different thing. And I think part of the work of looking at systems... Uh, Especially a system that literally brought stolen people, brought them here to work on land, build up a place, and then didn't have a long-term plan for us. There was no long-term plan for black people. And as we fought for our freedom, like we've been doing for 500 years, that has been grueling. It's been gruesome. It's been deeply traumatic. And so it is um, a human's natural response to cope with trauma. Uh, And part of coping with trauma is sometimes uh, or often using substances. Um, So that's one way to think about it. But there's another statistic that I think is very helpful, which is 80 to 90% of the people who use drugs don't ever become addicted to them. So then where did we come up with the idea that people, the moment you take a hit of something, you're going to become addicted. That is rhetoric from the war on drugs. Um, that's a rhetoric that was created to demonize mostly black people. Um, uh, that was a rhetoric that was created to um, further this idea that black people didn't know how to take care of ourselves didn't know how to manage ourselves. Um, And it was an idea that furthered the criminalization of black people, right? We become addicted, become violent, out of control. You have to lock them up, you have to put them away. Uh, And so I I really challenge the language around addiction. Um, I try not to use that unless that's really true for somebody, and I really try to problematize, well, what's really going on? Is, is the drug use the problem, or is the system that created the conditions for someone to use drugs the problem?
4: One of the things people might not know about you um, that I love and adore about you is your commitment to healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a question, uh, my sister. Are mm-hmm. people are feeling besieged by the real and psychological assault on our body and space? How can we respond and keep our sanity?
3: Yeah. Um, oh, I love that question. I knew you would. Yeah, so important. Well, a few things. I mean, I really deeply believe that a part of Black People's re- Reparations Package should be a therapist, each one of us. <laughs> I'm going to say it enough that when we decide to go back to the reparations conversation, it's going to be like point one. Um, <laughs> and if you don't believe in talk therapy, some sort of healing modality, you know, something uh, that you have access to on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. Um, I'm a firm believer in therapy. I've been in it since I was 21 years old. Um, and I deeply believe in um, community as a source of healing. Uh, being with friends, family, loved ones, uh, spending a lot of time laughing. uh, I deeply believe in um, courageous conversations, you know, as part of um, how we heal. Uh, It's never fun to have funkiness towards other folks um, in your movement, so I think that's another part of healing. Um, and then there's like all the other things I'm in California now so y'all will get it I was in other places they were like what I like crystals and sage and <laughs> um, I build lots of altars everywhere I go you know
4: But but, with, but how does a girl from the hood end up play with crystals, and I was always, like,
3: I was always hella weird though. Like, I was just the weird one. Trust and believe. I would come out. My mom would be like, "Oh, that's what you're wearing today." Um, I, I had a, you know, a deep inspiration for me around spirit was Harriet Tubman. The f- earliest memories of, of reading her, of reading about her was um, her visions that she would have, and I was like, "Ooh, I, I like see, I, I, there's something in that that feels." Like, it pulls, pulls me. Um, so I always was, like, very clear about um, spirit. And, you know, I, in the book I talk about, I grew up Jehovah's Witness, and um, that was definitely not the religion that I wanted to be in as a child. It was very confusing. I didn't understand how the world had just been here for t- 2,000 years. It, well, and it, you were,
4: like, what do you call it, e- exile? I wasn't. My mother your mother was, was exiled. Multiple times. Because um, she had your brother at... Because she had children out of wedlock. Which means that she could go to the church, but she couldn't talk to anybody, and
3: people could not talk to her. And if they did, she had to tell them, "I'm just fellowshiped," and they would say, "Okay," and back up away from her. She was like a leper. It was very traumatic, actually, as a child. So I was like, "Why would I want to be a part of this?" (laughs) Uh, That don't make no sense. Um, But I was like trying to find. I knew I I I knew that I believed in spirit, Um, and like you know, no shade to the atheists in the house. Um, I knew I believed in spirit, and I wanted... I wanted um, what I loved about the Kingdom Hall was connection to something bigger than me, something um, broader than me being in community, and so I really longed for that and eventually would find my spiritual home.
4: have got a couple of questions with the same theme, so I'm going to go there. Um, particularly about the work between... Um, La- the Latinx community and the black community. I'm blending y'all's questions mm-hmm. together. Um, and dealing with anti-blackness and Latinx community. How do we deal with it? And then move forward as mm-hmm. allies. Yeah, well,
3: you know, I've, this is a good question, and I've, I've, I've answered a bit of this uh, on the tour, which is, like, how do we build relationships with each other? Um, sometimes we think that the way we build the relationships with each other is, like, do a project together, start a campaign together, which is true, um, that's a good way. Doing work together is a good way to um, be in relationship to one another. But there's this all this time in between um, where we should be breaking bread together, um, we should be hanging out together, we should be getting to know each other, we should get to know our pet peeves. I mean, there's a way in which um, I deeply desire our work to feel like we're building family, um, and not just pounding to the concrete and doing work. Um, because that's when I know that someone has my back. Um, I know when someone has my back because you've seen me ugly cry, you know, you've hung out with me and my baby, um, um, you've seen me vulnerable, not just on stage. There's a way in which um, I think we prioritize campaigns that are gonna bring us together. And we've seen that that's. You know, what's love got to do with it? Like, we have to actually be building foundations with one another.
4: The other thing that folks might not know about you is that you are an an accomplished artist. yeah, And have been an artist most of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, The role of art in the liberation movement. It's everything.
3: (laughs) Um, Black people are creative people. Uh, I think we uh, are deeply connected to uh, creativity and art, and so it, it weaves throughout everything that we do and every movement that we're a part of. Um, and I, and I, you know, I often some of the best artists that I've met are organizers. Um, and when I first joined the movement, I was 17 years old, and I remember, um, you know, one of my mentors saying to me, "You got to choose." it's either going to be this organizing or art. And I was like, nope. <laughs> We're about to do both of these things. Uh, and I'm so grateful that I was stubborn in that way um, and that I said, no, because I knew that I needed both. I needed both to fill. I couldn't be someone that was just in a conservatory and did art all day or theater all day. I would be very bored. Um, and I can't, I'm not someone that just could be like strictly policy campaign work. I think it is important that we marry those things. Um, And art and cultural work um, also gives us more space to feel and imagine um, how our world can be different. Sometimes when you get stuck in the rut of campaign and policy, you can't be imaginative. Um, And I think art allows us to be imaginative.
4: There's this big push uh, right now to to go to the polls. It's like sort of the Mm knee-jerk reaction to to Trump. BLM and uh, electoral politics? Mm-hmm. Yes? No? Sure. Um, and
3: that's not going to get us free. Say more. Well, okay. So it's a few things. Um, for me, it's all about strategy. Um, and for folks who've read Marx, it's time, place, and condition. Right. What's What's the time? What's the place? What's the condition? The charge to for electoral power is an, I think it's an important charge. Um, I don't think it's a charge that we should be neglectful of um, or not insert ourselves in. But if we steer ourselves, you know, the whole ship in that direction, we're going to lose a lot. Uh, and what I mean by that is. Um, no, only the only good elected official is the elected official that is following the base, is following the people, um, and what I, what I argue is that um, the right right now are being really good elected officials to their base. Mm. They are showing up for their base, uh, and um, the Democratic Party that is supposed to be, we're supposed to be their base, has completely neglected us and have neglected us for a very long time. And so... (laughs) The conversation of electoral politics and where they're at right now, I think is a fine place to start. Um, But we actually need to go further. And the further is, we should be questioning why we live in a country that only has two parties. And we should be um, challenging ourselves in this moment to think about what it would look like to have more than two parties, what would it look like to have a party that's actually invested in black people, and poor people, and workers. And so that's what I get curious about. Um, Right now is an interesting moment. I'm not one of those people that's gonna like, sit and do a lot of criticizing of it. I think it's a good start. Um, We need a multi-pronged strategy in
4: order to, like, get to what we need and what we deserve. Some of my black and brown sisters felt the Women's March was a sellout, hijacked... I think that says bull... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Others embraced it. Your thoughts. Oh, man. (laughs) So many thoughts.
3: Um, hmm... So it's important in these moments that we look at history. And historically, what we've seen is black folks are some of the first ones to fight for our freedom, Um, and then we see usually white women fight for theirs. Um, And it often doesn't look like an intersectional, holistic movement um, that it should look like. I think at this current moment, you know, when the call-out for people to go march um, at, at Washington, that first call-out was made by white women. And then there was an intervention made. I don't know the full story, but every creation story is important to understanding how we get to where we get. Um, and there were women of color who were brought in to really intervene on that framework around whiteness. What I will say is, Um, the unfortunate reality is many of the women's marches across the country in particular because I can't speak for the women's marches across the world because there's been a lot in like third world countries. Brazil did a women's march but many of the women's marches in this country have been largely led by white women who've relied on law enforcement to police their march and literally is antithetical to the work that BLM has been doing and trying to do for the last four years. And so it becomes very complicated. Um, and the National Women's March, I don't know if you saw, put out a letter to, basically to the public saying we we are a decentralized movement because they are and I think we taught... We, if there were no Black Lives Matter, there, will be, there would be no Women's March. We've set the foundation. And the idea that this new way age, this new round of feminism is coming out of the Women's March is just false because we are feminists and Black Lives Matter. And it's largely been led by black women and queer people and trans people. And so this idea that um, white women get to own feminism I think is super disturbing. Um, but they did write this letter, which basically they had to Denounced many of the women's marches that were happening because they were relying on police. And so I think it's just important uh, that we understand there are serious contradictions um, and that um, I agree with some of the statement, right, that it's a hijack. Uh, but what it's important for me in, in these moments um, is to not let the hijack continue, um, that we get to take the narrative back Um, we get to have a new... We get to remind people um, the story and what's been happening and why Black Lives Matter is a feminist movement, and actually, the resistance didn't start on November 6th when white women decided to wake up. That we've been here, fighting for a very long time.
4: Um, Black Lives Matter is a feminist movement. Mm -hmm. Um, For some black women, still, uh, the word feminism can create that that effect. Um, talk about for you what it means being a Black feminist. What Black feminism manifests as. I don't
3: generally identify as a feminist, although I am, um, be- for that very reason. But I, what I I guess what's important, and, and then I'll continue to answer your question is I also don't want feminism to be uh, allowed to be co-opted or, re- or relegated to white women. I think that's really dangerous. Um, And my feminism is um, about uh, centering those most at the margins, um, black trans women in particular. My feminism is um, not just about equal pay, um, while I think equal pay is really important. um, And no, I'm not going to boycott Netflix for Monique, but I would help her wage a campaign against Netflix uh, because I think it's important. Um, I think feminism is um, challenging white supremacy. It's challenging patriarchy. Um, And it's recreating a world where we imagine all genders or no no genders to have deep autonomy and freedom.
2: Giving us a lot to uh, think about. That was the voice of Patrice Cullors, co-author of the book, When They Call You a Terrorist. A Black Lives Matter memoir. Um, her and Asha Bendeli wrote this book. Then Patrice is at the first Congregational Church in Oakland with Cat Brooks, and really getting into some very important areas: the budgeting of police, addictions, do you call them or not? All sorts of things, and that's just the tip of the iceberg in this conversation with Cat Brooks and Patrice Colors.
4: Don't stop.
0: EMN, at it again. Sandman, Daddyman, in Innovation. Stimulating new conversation. Anything else is just imitation. Simulation. Step into the zone. The Bay Area Zone. Hard knock radio. Let's go. Big shout of need and Davy D. Yeah right, feel me yeah. On and down at Hard Knock Radio. Hard knock radio. Kinda crazy though. Uh, Oakland stand up. Yeah. Stand up. Ensemble, big Night, yeah, Yeah. yeah. they ain't all the fees. at the table with making lovers with a on name Real talk radio. You and I rocking with the best in the West. I'm West Coast, Monday through Friday. East
2: Coast.
6: Giving teachers what they want. With right-wing politicians racing to arm teachers and making schools neighborhood fortresses, one wonders, why don't let's ask teachers what they want? Teachers in West Virginia will tell you what they want, and it ain't Glocks. Since February the 22nd, teachers there have walked out demanding raises. Their demand is simple and to the point. No raise, no school. Teachers had earlier negotiated a 5% raise after talks with the governor. West Virginia Senate cut the raise out of the budget, and teachers took to the streets. It shows how politicians treat teachers as props rather than the hardworking people that they are. No raise, no school is beginning to echo far beyond the borders of the mountain state. Workers are beginning to awaken from their long nightmares kudos to the teachers power to the teachers from Imprison Nation this is Mumia Abu Jamal these commentaries
7: are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio on the move I want to thank Mr. Louis Farrakhan for the kind invitation to join you all here as we gather in Person or electronically. We do so in a time of peril. We do so in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. When the state showed us all that they don't give a damn about Black Lives the, the angry life leaders life that life
8: frame Mumia are the same names blamed for Hurricane Katrina. See levies would break, the waters would crush, and President Bushy would forsake the poor and oppressed no so just. From the smaller Katrinas, we experience our deadly effects in all arenas. Every year, public schools miseducate the poor, destroying any chance to advance and get more, man. Taxes pay for the oppression we experience. Police too brutal for me to mention, it gets really tense. Consumers of the media feel Poison poisoning our minds with gimmicks and violent images. The daily hurricanes of hate and indifference, experience behind the prison gate on some The courthouse laws and they reveal are threats to our welfare and.
7: not. But, 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 but every day of our lives, we see small but no less lethal Hurricane Katrina. Every year, in public schools, millions of black, Latino, and poor kids are miseducated, thereby destroying, as surely as any hurricane, their life hopes and chance and we need
8: the movement the millions to bring true social power to civilians. You don't got to swallow the bullshit from the one that you follow and free your mind from the mud that you follow in. Labor. From the confusion of social repression and destitution, there is only one solution to this intrusion, a movement of millions to bring forth a revolution, now who's in? Those engaged in the struggle for freedom and justice, and the liberation of political prisoners. we need those dedicated to change, so that rich and poor children are educated the same, yeah, we need the movement to resist the fraction that brought you patriot acts, but not patriotic actions, we need a movement that ignites, not divides us, despite all the trauma,
7: People, the survivors. We, we need a movement of millions to build human social power to free our minds and our bodies from the mud that we languish in. We need a movement of millions to transform our current social reality of repression and destitution. We need a movement of millions to bring back light to the eyes of our people to engage in a struggle for freedom, for justice, and for liberation. We need. A movement of millions, of the poor, of workers, of women, of youth, of students, of prisoners, of all those dedicated to change. To build independent organizations that can't be bought or sold, and will do the work necessary to be free. Free, free, free. Let us, ha, 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 Radio East, West, North, South, conectados. Every set, every hood, barrio oh, oh, oh. to barrio. Oh. Y'all stand no, up, stay righteous, no, speaking to the thugs. No, One love, Let I hate, I hate. we know where y'all at. Pop, <laughs> buffalo so hard knock life, gotta pay your bills. They want a song about bling, but it ain't real. Uh, we speak to the kids and the OGs. organized mobilize, be the change you wanna see. 415s bumping hard knock radio. Brown Buffalo, all up in your stereo. And to the youth, live life like it's golden. Go dumb, go hard, but don't forget where you're going. We from the hood, so it's all to the good. Let us know this what you're feeling is right. Let's get this understood. It's only one reason why we here today. We make real yeah, music, so yeah, the people can yeah, be made like, yeah.
9: Learning from the hard knocks, living in these hard knocks, listening to hard knocks, knocks. Knock, pushing in the forecast Learning through these hard knocks, living for this hip hop, listening to
7: hard knocks, ripping to the hard stop Learning from the hard knocks, living in these hard knocks, listening to hard knocks, pushing in the forecast Learning through these hard knocks, living for this hip hop, listening to hard knocks, ripping to the hard stop
9: My money, my body, now your own It's a real body? If I tell you, say I love you, oh My money, my body, now your own Oh, baby Party billion for the account, oh Versace and Gucci for your body, oh, baby no, you, no, you, no, you gotta, gotta for me No, you, no, you, no, you say that, No, you, no, you, no, you shakara, you, no, I gotta, for me, beauty, My number one, vitu Sipi, brooku, tutu For your love, I go chuku, chuku, chuku. Biko because i Yeah, you do me juju. Cause I'm feeling the juju. Shake it to you. Take it. I wanna dash it to you. Take it. You can have it to you. Take it. You know I got this in I love you, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. There's nothing above you. There's nothing above you, above you, above you. Above you. To you. I like your minis get you. Okay, you carry vest you. Uh, if I tell you, I love you. oh. My money, my body, now your own. Oh, baby. 30 billion it, for the account. Yo, oh. Versace and Gucci for your body. Oh baby. No, do not do. No, do. Get a get her for me. Not do, no do, not do, not do, not do, do, not do, do, not do, do, not do, not do, not do, not do, not you do me juju, cause I'm feeling the juju And you know say nobody only, but I don't go tell you story I gotta be your man, I gotta be your man Let me talk to you, say a few things Then I'm feeling you, but it's up to you Say you know I got this, I love you, I love you I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you there's nothing above you, there's nothing above you, above you. Oh. Bridget, I like your mini sketchy. Oh. Okay, you carry you. Oh. If I tell you, say I love you. Oh. My money, my body, now your own. Oh, baby. 30 billion for the account, oh. yo. Hey, Versace and Gucci for your body, oh baby. No, 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 do got me No, no, you Not I know No, 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 do oh, eh you got
1: Your favorite boy, techno, on the beat Mix most up Mm-hmm. Spread their mystic charms In the hush of
5: night
1: While you're in my arms I feel your lips so warm and tender My one I only. eager heart with such desire. Every kiss you give sets my soul on fire. I give myself in sweet
4: surrender.
0: You are listening to my KB.
4: Hey KBOO fans, it's the last week of our
3: fall membership drive and there has never been a better time to support your favorite community radio station. Donate right now at kboo.fm slash give and your